Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... (laughs) Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) I think my favourite in our updated intro montage is a certain French president saying, I don't think I know. So thanks to Democracy Sausage's brilliant executive producer, Angus Blackman, who put together that montage in spare time that he doesn't really have. Hello and thanks to for listening to Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week, of course, from Australia's only national university and specifically from the Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy. I'm Mark Kenny. History may not repeat, but it certainly has some familiar harmonics. Europe facing a dangerous war over territory in which ethnic nationals are the technical justification for incursion. And Britain, as it was in the lead-up to World War II, really just an island unto itself again. A lot of that, of course, is down to the self-styled Churchill enthusiast, biographer even, who, like his subject, has links to America. Winston Churchill's mother, of course, was American, and Boris Johnson was born there. These are our topics this week, which is... uh, Not surprising, really, given the Ukraine crisis, which is escalating even as we speak, what that means for Europe, NATO, the West, China's ambitions in this region, and how Australia is being viewed after two-plus years of forced isolation. And, of course, Boris Johnson. He's embroiled in scandal, awaiting a ruling from the Metropolitan Police as to whether he broke COVID laws, he wrote, and, and enforced on the country. So there's a lot to talk about, and my guest this week is Sophia Gaston, who I'm delighted to say is actually here with me in the studio in Canberra, unlike the usual remote arrangement, Sophia, where you come to us uh, from London. It's great to be here, two years on. Yes, and here we sit with with masks on, so apologies if that uh, leads to any sort of a slightly different sound that, than we normally have. Let's Let's start with sort of Boris Johnson. I know the the Ukraine crisis, as I say, is escalating even as we speak. We've heard some very disturbing news really just in the last half hour since we uh, uh, came together, but um, we'll come to that. But Boris Johnson, um, 
you know, it's it's an entertaining story for for those of us in Australia watching it, uh, puzzling in so many ways. He seems to have been involved in almost a sort of a constant state of scandal. There's been the scandal over his, you know, for the funding of renovations to his flat, the pandemic arrangements, Dominic Cummings, his former staffer who turned on him, Tory MPs earning vast sums from from sort of running consultancies or working as lobbyists. Uh, of course, these parties at number 10 now, uh, which are the subject of uh, this Metropolitan Police investigation. He's refused to answer the question about whether he will resign if the Metropolitan Police uh, conclude that he has, in fact, or that people at number 10 have, in fact, broken the law. Uh, do you think he will, or is, 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 is this sort of, is the heat gone out of this because of other pressing issues and just how long it's taken? I think the heat is going out of it. And certainly, there, it's absolutely the case that we did get quite close up to the brink of feeling as though um, he, he might not be long in post. And, and I think that was quite an extraordinary feeling in Westminster because Boris Johnson, you know, the received wisdom is that he, you know, is incredibly resilient and has been able to sort of wriggle himself out of tight situations his entire career. It's important to note that all of this began really, you know, obviously there are roots in in the fracturing of the relationship with Dominic Cummings and Dominic Cummings, his former aide, is waging an active campaign to unseat him from office. It's really quite extraordinary that, isn't it? it? Because it's it very is, colourful. And it, there's some resonances here with Scott Morrison, who we'll come to later as well, in terms of, you know, someone close to the leader giving a... Um, you know, a, a testimonial about, you know, a, an inside of you of being up close with this person and giving a, a damning character assessment. Does it get taken seriously or is Cummings seen as, a, as, as, as the eccentric character that he is and is it sort of dismissed on that basis? I think Cummings is, you know, it, his because of his proximity to the Prime Minister and his very central role in Number 10 in the time that he was there, I think all the new information he brings to light is obviously taken seriously and and you know uh given light and time of day in Westminster but equally everything is taken with an enormous grain of salt because his motivations are so laid bare and you know it's he's, and what, he, what are those motivations is it is it sort of just sort of business from the way it all ended and and a sense of revenge i mean he, there's obviously a lot of personal animus there now absolutely i mean dominic cummings will say that he's acting on behalf of the good of the nation that he actually is is, is a sort of statesman who's trying to raise the alarm he's the sort of cassandra trying to show that boris johnson is ultimately dangerous and and threat to not only kind of you know national interests and and decency and standards in public life, but that he's a sort of threat to national security. But you know, of course, I think most people in Westminster really feel that he is motivated by a sort of pretty unedifying, um, you know, transfiction with revenge. Um, mm. He's particularly focused on uh, the Prime Minister's wife, Carrie Johnson. And, you know, it's very difficult to not uh, look at some of his, um, you know, some of the kind of ways in which he's been leaking stories and the kinds of narratives he's been trying to construct as, as absolutely motivated by um, a degree of misogyny as well. Well, that's interesting that, that, that there's, you're saying this, uh, there's a sense, there's a theory that 
he has uh, some sort of underlying hatred f- for women and that this is in, in part in part his motivation for his attack on the PM's wife. Well, I think the Vote Leave campaign, which is kind of really where he came to prominent and certainly was his route into number 10, mm. it was a pretty blokey operation. And I think, you know, there's, there's, you know, that's been plain to see. You know, I, I don't, it's, I can't assess whether or not he is a misogynist, but um, I think certainly most people would feel that while there are legitimate questions to raise about the role of the Prime Minister's wife, given the very unusual situation of her being a political operator herself and a very kind of senior member of the Conservative Party and also obviously very close friends with a lot of the staff working Mm. in Number 10. You know, I think while there are legitimate questions there, there also has been an air of sexism um, in a lot of the commentary. And and it's absolutely true that Dominic Cummings has been a driving force in leaking a lot of these stories um, that seem specifically focused to denigrate her, perhaps sometimes even more so than the Prime Minister. Let's go to the actual allegation at the moment that the the allegations that the Met is looking at, which in some ways, I think you're, you're of the view that to some extent this has given Boris Johnson some breathing space because the Met takes some time to go through this. That in itself is kind of, uh, you know, slightly mysterious. It's amazing that all of these political issues, when they come up, certainly in Australia and seems in the UK as well, once they get going to these inquiries, uh, whether it be police inquiries or or special inquiries that are set up, they seem to take an inordinately large amount of time, and that's obvious, often to the advantage of the uh, the accused. The one in the, that we're talking about here, you know, where there were there some, you know, a whole series of parties in Number Ten during a period when the rest of the country was required to completely divide and separate and stay in their homes and uh, not associate in any way, and was Number Ten, you know, doing, you know, p- pursuing its own set of rules. Is is that the sort of long and the short of it? Is there more to this? I think, you know, it's funny, it was striking to me that you said at the beginning that it's, um, you know, been very entertaining to watch from Australia because, I mean, while, of course, the Westminster machine loves sort of kicking into action when there's a scandal like this and, um, you know, moving into overdrive, um, the core of this issue is a, a very painful story uh you know at that time when all of these the the investigations into these parties have been taking place at that time in in england um you know we we were living with restrictions that are utterly unprecedented and were incredibly draconian mm. and impeded with a lot of you know the most core human instincts and people were separated from you know, loved ones who were passing away, couldn't have funerals, people living socially atomized lives. You know, a lot of these rules and regulations end up being updated and evolved pretty quickly after this time. But this was the absolute crux of it. Um, And it was a time that a lot of people, I think, haven't really wanted to look back on very much. But certainly when they do, it's, it's a source of great trauma for people. And we haven't really kind of nationally had that moment. And so what's happened is that with all these revelations coming out, people are sort of looking back on that time and it's almost kind of bringing all of those stories up to the fore that people had wanted to bury and move on from. So that's certainly the context in in the way in which individual people and MPs alike, who Mm. of course 
just their inboxes have just been flooded with individual stories about the impacts. Now, you know, there, there is a degree of reckoning around this because in some, to some extent, you now look at the, you know, a lot of the Westminster conversation has been to say, well, actually, those regulations were completely inappropriate and too extreme and, and, and so on. So I think that's one side of it. But I think it's the hypocrisy. And it's not like there was a kind of Trumpian experience here where Boris Johnson would say was, you know, against restrictions and downplaying the severity of the pandemic. While the this sort of convivial, sociable culture was was um, you know permeating through Number Ten, he was every night going out in these press conferences and telling people these are the rules you have to stick to them, and he was very grave yeah. about it. So I think that's what has been troubling for people. So I don't I want, don't want to make light of how serious these allegations are. But I do think that so much power is in the hands of the incumbent and it's all about momentum. And actually, there have been several other scandals and missteps and crises that had all compounded up until the point where party gators, it's now known, kind of came to the fore. So there was a sort of bedrock of, you know, ill feeling and, and, and discord amongst the Conservative Party, which we should note is rather less disciplined than the Conservative Party of the past. And and so, you know, everything kind of was reaching a fever pitch where something that is not common in British politics did look possible. Now, I do think that a lot of that, that has that ebbed. That being the necking of a leader, you mean? Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. That That's certainly not something that, you know, I mean, we had- We do we it had every that, month here. Well, so. exactly. We had that a bit with Theresa May, but that was, I mean, really a moment of national crisis around the Brexit yeah. kind of no deal situation with Parliament in chaos. So there is a really high threshold to get to that point. And what's happened is some of the plotters, you know, went a bit too early, overplayed their hand. Some cabinet members kind of were forced to pull back a little bit. So a lot of that kind of feeling of momentum seems to have fallen away. So I I would say that the odds of him staying have have increased quite significantly over the that, past fortnight. And, and that's going to the sort of question of, of whether he will resign on the on the back of whatever the Met's findings are, uh, and that's interesting. I suppose there's another question about, um, you know, which I've written in my notes here, is he toast or Teflon? I mean, he's been <laughs> Teflon. He's got that sort of yeah. indefatigable optimist thing happening, and that's kind of in tune with the times. People need that, and Boris Johnson sort of personifies it, as a word you used last night when we were discussing this. In some ways, you can imagine him just battling through, but there are... There are competitors circling now who yes. think that, yes, he might get through this particular moment of the crisis, uh, but uh, he still may not be there come the time of the next election. Yes, I think there has always been a sense, um, you know, but, but Boris has, there are some people who are incredibly loyal to him, but he doesn't have an expansive base in the party in the way that some others have, partly because he sort of came into the party in a rather unusual way. You know, he was mayor of London, he was sort of not in the cut and thrust of the kind of ministerial um, scramble to the top. So, you know, there there have always been those. I mean, even when he came to power, there were plenty of his fellow MPs who, who have no love for him whatsoever. So it was always going to be in danger, even with an 80-seat majority, to these kinds of things. And I think his, his behavior was always going to be watched closely. What's happened now with that fever pitch of momentum that has dissipated is that what was created in that time still exists, which is several 
fairly fleshed out, um, you know, functional leadership campaigns of several potential candidates. People like Liz Truss, who's currently the Foreign Secretary. Yes, and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. There's several others of different sort of factions of the party. Would they be the two primary ones, you would think, Truss and Sunak? I think that their campaigns are given a certain degree of credence because they are in the cabinet at the moment. So, you know, it's a kind of, firstly, they're more visible. It's an easier springboard, but also their their campaigns are more dangerous. They can only afford to move mm. when they're absolutely certain. Yeah, there are other backbenchers and sort of senior politicians, um, particularly, you know, there's sort of some from the kind of fringes on, on both sides, in, including the kind of more liberal wing of the party, who can probably kind of maneuver a bit maneuver a bit more in the shadows before they have to put their head above the parapet. But I, I, I think, you know, there's always been this sense of maybe it makes sense to keep Boris in post to manage the transition out of COVID, which is what's happening right now. And then there's these big local elections in early May. There is some concern that the Conservatives might do pretty badly in those. There was that by-election recently where they got absolutely hammered. Yes, yeah. yes. And so it's it's unclear how those elections are going to go, but they may perform badly. And if they do, I think there'll be a bit of momentum gathering again for a potential summer leadership challenge. Because that would be like a real-world window into what the voters are thinking about Boris Johnson, whether you know, it would sort of suggest that uh, the gloss had completely worn through. Indeed. I think, look, you've got a couple of competing things here. It's absolutely clear that Boris's approval ratings have, you know, fallen quite significantly over recent months. And, and that fall is is genuine. At the same time, I do think that there is a sense in British politics, you know, the very most significant kind of paradigm that has been in place from 2019 onwards and has remained resilient during the pandemic is just, we want to move on. We want to look for the future. We want to feel good about the country. We want to be optimistic. Let's put all of this behind us and go forward. Nobody wants an acrimonious, emotional, stressful, factional kind of environment in 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 politics. We've, we've been through a national trauma and upheaval in some way with Brexit. Um, and so I think that is... And then a, the pandemic, of course. Well, yeah. indeed, and then the pandemic. So so I think there is a degree to which, you know, the, the threshold for imposing further change mm. has to be really high and you would have to know that the outcome on the other side is going to feel competent and like a really well-oiled machine. Yeah, yeah, perfectly understood. Now, just quickly, we're going to take a break in a moment, but I'd just like to get to... The visit that was to happen with Boris Johnson coming to Australia, uh, which which didn't happen, it sort of uh, ended up being a virtual meeting. Just interesting reasoning, really, about that trip. I mean, who would it have benefited, Scott Morrison or, or Boris Johnson? I imagine Johnson, for all his his faults and foibles, is probably quite an, an exotic and and I would imagine a figure of some interest, perhaps even affection uh, for many in Australia, uh, not universally, of course, but. Um, would would that have been to Morrison's benefit or to Johnson's benefit, and 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 perhaps it would have caused Morrison, you know, given that Johnson is so much more progressive on climate change, might have caused Morrison some a bit of anguish, really, leading into the election, with journalists constantly questioning him about Britain's superior position on climate change. For sure, and you know, I think given uh, on one hand you've got the AUKUS partnership, which in a way kind of 
creates a, a meaningful pretext for a lot more of these kind of bilateral visits in any case. But I think given we had just had Aukman with the, the Foreign Secretary and Defence Secretary yeah. out from the UK. This is the Australia-UK Foreign Minister. Exactly. Yeah. It did feel perhaps as though it was it was a little bit more of a politically oriented visit about kind of, you know, shoring up that leader to leader relationship. Mm. And, you know, I think you've outlined um, very well some of the risks here. I think it's a very finely tuned calculation um, on both sides. And at some point, I think the risks possibly on both sides just flipped a little bit. And so, you know, the potential rewards for Boris Johnson, um, you know, perhaps were less clear and, and the potential rewards for Scott Morrison were less clear. And I think in that environment, there was a bit of a push to pull back. And, and you know, I understand that visit is sort of still on the cards in some kind of way, but um, it will probably be taking place after the election now. Yes. Yeah, so it could be with Scott Morrison. It may well be with Anthony Albanese. Indeed. Uh, we'll see what happens. Let's just take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, I'm joined here, of course, by Sophia Gaston, who's the director of the British Foreign Policy Group. I should have said that at the top of the show, but uh, you've no doubt heard her before. She's obviously very well dialed in with all kinds of matters in Westminster and the foreign policy uh, establishment in in Britain and its relationship with the UK and the rest of, uh, with the with Europe and the rest of the world. Let's go to this Ukraine crisis now because uh, this is very important. You know, this is. Um, this is not your average story here. This is really the first uh, serious war in Europe since the Second World War, and there are some parallels here as well. I mean, you know, parallels with, with the Second World War are often perilous things, but nonetheless we have, as I said uh, at the start, you know, um, uh, these aggressive moves uh, pursued under the pretext of, of protecting ethnic citizens. Uh, you know, Hitler argued this, uh, Putin's arguing this now. What's the latest as, as we sit here? Well, I should say, you know, I think in it – it's natural in a way for people in Australia to be feeling this is happening on the other side of the world. How seriously should I be paying attention to this? You know, I, I very much want to emphasize that what's happening here, this crisis with Russia invading Ukraine again, um, you know, this is something that has the direct interests of the Western Alliance and our you know, Western partners and allies um, at stake. And so it's something that absolutely, I think, Australia should be very much focused on. Um, 
obviously I understand the geographical pivot, but the, but these are about, you know, this this issue here is really about the future of liberal democracy and the advance of authoritarian powers and a kind of lawlessness and, and a recklessness about international law and treaties and conventions that have played a really important role in underpinning global peace and security. And that has all sorts of ramifications that would absolutely hit home here in the Indo-Pacific as and, well. And that's a really, and, and what you're saying there is this is a really pivotal moment where all of that comes up for test, really, that is being sorely tested now. Uh, so we're seeing it happen in real time. You've you've been in the country now for about a week. Have you noticed a difference in the way this crisis has been reported uh, you know, uh, from the Northern Hemisphere to here? Well, I mean, obviously, in 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 the UK, it's been really, you know, obviously the kind of domestic political party gate scandals aside, it has been the big story for for really around a month or or more, and that's partly because Russia is very firmly established as the fundamental security paradigm in in the UK. It's partly because the UK has been playing a really leading proactive role in supporting Ukraine and coordinating an international response effort. And it's also partly because, uh, you know, this in some ways is about the NATO alliance. And in the UK, you know, we definitely see ourselves as the leading European power in that. So I think, you know, for for all of those reasons, uh, the UK has played a big role. It's been front and centre. I think, you know, it's more, it's not so much here that I've picked up a sort of difference in the way in which it's being reported. It's more just the sort of attention that's being given to the crisis full stop. And I think there is obviously a tendency here to try and connect the questions about Russia into the questions about China. And to that point, I think there was a meeting, a very significant meeting between um, President Xi and Putin during the Olympics very recently. And what was very unusual about that meeting is it was entirely focused on international relations. So it was a kind of global purview in the way that we don't normally see between these two leaders. It's almost their kind of version of a G7 statement. And there were some pretty alarming things in there because there was there was a lot of conceptual synchronicity, but there were also some quite significant practical steps that came out of that, including a a sort of long-anticipated deal around gas traveling from Russia into China, which of course could offset any potential disruption to European markets as well. But what's happened more recently... So, so, so just to pick you up on that, so yeah. that is China essentially agreeing to buy gas that yeah. would be cut off from indeed, supply to, indeed. to Europe. So that actually increases... This is this is China essentially underpinning Stepping in, yeah. the resilience of Russia's gas markets, um, which in some ways reduces a little bit the power that the West has um, to to sort of threaten to withdraw from those markets and things like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, for example. But what has happened in the past few days, and this is really centered around the Munich Security Conference, which is the big conference where all world leaders get together and talk about kind of global peace and security. And obviously, the, the whole focus of this of this uh, conference was really about Ukraine. The very interesting thing was we've started to see China rolling back a little bit from the kind of tenor of that discussion around international relations, making very clear that they actually oppose 
territorial incursions being made by Russia into Ukraine and that they defend Ukraine's sovereignty. This is is really quite significant, isn't it? It's extremely significant. And the calculation there is that China has realized that their whole predication of, of their kind of national interest in Hong Kong and and also in Taiwan is around China's sovereignty with those territories and being an island being you know a part of their sovereign territory mm. and in supporting Russia to come in and try and create inde- politically independent separatist territories, they could in fact be actually bolstering the argument for um, independence in places like Taiwan. So that's been really important. um, And I do think to some degree shows uh, some of the limitations of that um, Russia-China partnership. Yes. And it's it's interesting because Scott Morrison has been saying in parliament, really ratcheting up the pressure on Xi Jinping to condemn Vladimir Putin's uh, ambitions and so forth. And there's been a lot of commentary about uh, that initial meeting uh, that happened during the Olympics. It's never been completely clear to me that China was particularly interested in uh, that it was that it was consistent with what we understand about China for China to want the chaos to ensue that might come from from Putin moving in Ukraine uh, and perhaps uh, that he's playing a slightly more nuanced role than he was being given credit for, uh, that is maintaining a high level of trust in the relationship between he and Putin uh, so as to be able to achieve some sort of diplomatic end. I mean, that that is diplomacy in a way and um, maybe there was maybe there's more to what China's doing than has been on the surface. Well, I think you know. It, it, let's it, that, let's that, that could the, be you know very hopeful. Yes, I mean, look. In a way, if you even look at the West, I mean, you know, we have come much more closely together over recent weeks, which has been very important um, on on the crisis at at um, the border in Ukraine. You know, we've started to be much more aligned on sanctions and and sort of the assessment of the threat and the possible responses and the sort of optimism around diplomacy. But equally, you know, even in the West, we're rather divided around our approaches to responding to this crisis and and particularly, you know, the extent to which uh, these sanctions should touch on different sorts of instruments, whether they're, you know, energy or financial instruments, investments and so on. So in that sense, you know, there's a bit of nuance there. And I think we should also assume that China um, is playing uh, its its kind of longer term and shorter term interests off against one another with Russia. And so so there's more nuance in that relationship. I do think it is um, really worth us reading those statements that came out of that meeting very carefully because both Russia and China have been fairly consistent at showing us their intent. China in particular tends to have quite long-term plans. They're in some ways very transparent about what they're trying to do and we haven't always looked very closely at them. So I think we need to be realistic that the threat the idea of these powers working together in a kind of really coordinated, close alliance in the same way that we understand alliances in the West, I just don't think is credible at this stage. Mm. But there It's is, a bit too simplistic, yes. but it suits certain 
political narrative, absolutely, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. That's certainly the narrative in Australia from the government that that uh, that China will welcome the the chaos of of uh, and the focus of the West on the Ukraine crisis to pursue its own ambitions, uh, as you say, with Hong Kong and, and Taiwan in particular. I mean, I think that, that, chi- that China will be watching. I guess that remains possible, doesn't it? Well, look, China will be watching closely, but I, you know, they to some degree do favor consistency and stability where they feel it serves their interests. I don't think that, you know, that there's fundamentally different philosophies guiding not only their geopolitical interests, um, but the compact that they have between citizens and state. And I think it's always really important to come back to that. For for China, the relationship, the kind of political settlement is very much built around an idea of economic growth and prosperity. And so that's always going to be the number one driving force. And so instability in global markets, um, disruptions to supply chains and so on, those sorts of things are not necessarily going to be viewed favorably in China. And I don't think that we can see, you know, China has absolutely been escalating its aggressions in in the Indo-Pacific and, you know, in places like Hong Kong, you know, the, that there is a, a sort of violence and menace to that. We, sh- we shouldn't gloss over that. But Russia is a fundamentally different actor. And it's while China has become more risk tolerant, Russia's risk tolerance feels at a pretty unprecedented point in, in recent history. And I, I do think there are questions about, you know, if Putin's just given a speech a couple of hours ago where he set out his kind of pretext for this new invasion. And, you know, that he He's did declared seem, a couple of republics, hasn't he? Yes. And, you know, the, the sort of nature of that speech felt quite sort of maniacal and a little bit unhinged even for him. Mm. Um, and, and there are questions we are hearing a little... Few whispers about you know the question as to to how deep the support he actually has behind him on this. So um, you know within the Kremlin, so that could be seen as um, he's actually cr- taking on a lot more personal risk as well with this situation. It, it's really fascinating because one dimension of this has to be the economic. We know there's all these sanctions that the UK, Liz Truss has announced the UK sanctions will commence immediately, uh, literally just in the sort of yes. hour before we uh, started having this conversation as a result of um, of those republics being declared and, and Putin setting up that pretext and, and tanks moving in. Events are happening fast and probably when people are listening to this, there may be even more uh, concrete and worrying developments. Um, but the Russian economy is is not as big as it used to be or as people might think. In fact, it's smaller than Australia's economy. Uh, I think Australia's at 13 and Russia's at 14 or 15 in, in, in the scale of uh, global economies. So yes, it's a nuclear power. Yes, it's a former um, former superpower. Um, you know, with uh, in, during the Cold War and in the, in the post World War II settlement. What's its ability to? I mean, because I, I, what made me think of this was your point about whether there's a kind of a uniform support for this within within uh, the Russian military, within the Russian government, such as it is. I wonder how long Russia can sustain. The cost of this must be huge, and that's not even taking into account the foregone growth and 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 wealth that can come from otherwise uh, trading without those sanctions. 
Yes. I mean, look, the, the cost of staging this and building up nearly 200,000 troops on the border and and all of the kind of other defensive materials and-, and Military you know, hospitals and, exactly, and armaments and so forth. Uh, you know, plus, you know, let's not forget there are already sanctions uh, leveled at Russia for, for various transgressions over the past decade. The economic costs are significant. So what what's the driving factor here? This is not about- you know, shoring up the country's economic security or its economic future. In fact, he's actually going to make life a lot more difficult for the Russian people over the long term. And I think it's very important that we do emphasize, you know, when we talk about Russia, that we're talking about the Russian regime and Putin's regime in particular, and not the Russian people themselves, who in many ways will also be victims of this decision. Um, I guess that would be, uh, it, may, it may be an unlikely outcome, but that would be the best outcome from this really would be for common sense to prevail and for Putin to be removed by well, his own people. Well, it's it's one of the reasons why Putin is moving now because he he's seizing an opportunity. That's that's really what what's happening here. He feels it, there's sort of two sort of two aspects to this. I think firstly, he feels that the window of uh, sort of coercing Ukraine into becoming a failed state is relatively narrow, in part because the younger generations have uh, been persuaded of uh, the value and um, their interests in, in pursuing a more kind of open, liberal, European future. Mm-hmm. And Ukraine could just be one sort of leader away from, you know, getting its act together and cleaning up some of the corruption and, and being able to kind of more economically, you know, flourish. The other thing is, of course, the the instability in the West, and there's a lot of different components of that. Putin has always watched Western domestic politics relatively closely because he understands that those weaknesses, whether it's socially or politically, constrain and shape uh, their behavior on the world stage. And he's very aware that there are, you know, some pretty kind of fraught calculations having to be made there. He watched the chaotic, shameful scenes in the withdrawal of Afghanistan. He sees Angela Merkel stepping down. He sees Biden about to be pulled into the fray around the midterm elections and and already struggling to get legislation through Congress. So, you know, and France is in elections. The UK is working out its role after Brexit. So, And he knows after Iraq and Afghanistan that the West has no uh, American public, for example, has no appetite for any sort of ground wars anyway. Yeah, there's no public consent for military intervention in a kind of proactive way, right? And he's aware of all of that. So for him, the stakes of the window of opportunity with Ukraine, you know, and that is his long-term goal to have Ukraine declared a failed state in which he can kind of, you know, step in with a, you know, under a sort of form of kind of like both economic and political coercion, you know, that that window is closing. And also the window of opportunity in terms of the West being distracted, insular, consumed by other things, um, and perhaps not getting along as well as, you know, may, may also be short-lived. So that's why he's acting now. And there's no kind of, you know, he's not going to derive any direct economic benefits. This is a geopolitical strategic choice in which in many ways what he's pursuing, um, a lot of that can be gained before he even had to step 
you know, have a boot go across the border. Mm. Um, a lot of this was about emphasizing chaos and division in the West. You know, and the, and the implications of that, and I'm, I have to say, you know, things were a bit dicey there a few weeks ago, but we are sort of generally pulling together in the right way, in the right direction. The implication of another chaotic, divided, on the back foot kind of response here to Ukraine after Afghanistan would have had real lasting damage, mm. um, not just, you know, domestically within Western nations, but it, it would have impeded the way in which people think about alliances and the importance of those alliances. And also, let's not forget, we have plenty of partners around the world who are dependent um, in in various ways on strategic and defensive and security support from the West. And they're watching all of this and starting to wonder, well, can we really rely on those guarantees and do we need to look elsewhere? So, you know, yes, this is Ukraine. It's not a NATO member now, but this the, the, the implications and the stakes, not just for Europe, but for the West it and all of its you know constituent members are very high. Sophia Gaston, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. You're so well informed and well connected into all of these debates and uh, really, really uh, fascinating to hear your thoughts on this desperate situation that's unfolding and changing and deteriorating even as we speak. So uh, we, our hearts go out to, uh, to the people of Ukraine in particular and to any innocent people caught up in this uh, and uh, we just hope that there is... Um, uh, not the worst case scenario and, and some sort of a better path can be found. Thanks for being here. And it's been terrific to have you in the studio in, in Australia. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again. It'll probably be more remote next time. But uh, once again, thanks, Sophia, for, for coming on Democracy Sausage. Thanks very much for having me. And that's the program for this week. I'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.